Father, we thank You for the cross of Your Son, Jesus Christ. As we've heard, Father, I thank You for the fact that as the offertory played, Father, that burdens are lifted at Calvary. Father, I pray tonight that as we continue through the book of Job that we would remember this, that we would remember our burdens, our cares can be cast upon You completely. And so, Lord, open our minds, open, uh, enable us to understand tonight, enable us to work our way through and see Christ in these pages, and this I ask in His name. Amen. <clears throat> if you remember back in chapter 6, verse 26, you don't have to turn there, but Job pointed out at that time to his friend Eliphaz that it is pointless to try to correct or reprove someone when he is speaking out of despair. But that flew right over their heads. Um, They won't stop. His friends won't stop. And believe it or not, they can be even more harsh than Eliphaz was. So tonight a second friend enters the stage named Bildad. He's even more impersonal and calculated than Eliphaz. That's what misplaced assurance does. If you think you are right, you feel justified to say whatever you want. And that's precisely what Bildad does, no matter how hurtful or how mistaken he is. Not only can um, false gospels not save us, false gospels cannot comfort us. Remember, that's what we're hearing in essence as we work our way through. These are false gospels. These are false ideas about how man and, uh, can be made right with God or be justified before God. Tonight we'll read Bildad's speech against Job. We'll read Job's response to Bildad and then Job's continuing outcry to God. We'll identify the heart of Bildad's false gospel and we'll see once again or be able to see once again through uh, Job's singular faith in the true gospel. Again, it wasn't real at the time. He didn't know what it was at the time, but in essence, with Christ laid back over all of Scripture, that's what Job is doing for us. That's what Job ultimately believed in. He just didn't know what to call it. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan writes about how from the moment we lost communion with God in the garden, we've been trying to find God once again through the power of our minds. But searching for God with nothing other than our mental capacities is not only always a failure, it's disastrous. Bildad has nothing on which to ground his accusation of Job, but in his mind, his view of God validates what he says to this broken and suffering man. So Bildad's false gospel is a burden to the suffering. It's an empty nothing to those who need to be saved. And Job's response in pointing us to our need points us to our Savior. So Bildad believed that since God would never pervert justice that Job must have sinned, and he calls Job to repent for it. Job rejected the idea that a man could ever be in the right before God and cried out for a mediator to plead his case and vindicate him. So let's begin in chapter 8 of Job this evening. It reads, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. 
For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant? Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Bildad is the epitome of a moralist. The world is black and white to him. He comes at Job. He's already angry. He's morally outraged. He basically says in those first two verses, you need to shut your mouth. Right off the bat, he shows his hand in verse 3. Look back there. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? There is no way Job is not being punished for sin, is what Bildad is saying. And you know what? Your kids, they must have sinned too. There's literally no other way to explain Job's suffering for him. If there is calamity in someone's life, it's because someone has done something to bring calamity on themselves. If your kids are dead, Job, it's because they did something wrong, so they deserved it. If you're suffering, it's because you did something wrong, and you deserve it. So what Job needs to do, according to Bildad in verses 5 and 6, is repent. Because if you're pure and upright, then surely God will rouse himself for you. What's the implication there from Bildad? God is on my side. He's roused himself for me because I am pure and upright. What have you done, Job? In verses 8 through 10, Bildad pulls the tradition card, right? This is the way it's always been. You, you aren't questioning the wisdom of the past, are you? Everybody knows this. This has always been true. Then he points to the created order in 11 through 19, and he says, in essence, listen, nothing God does is without a cause, Job. Nature is evidence of the way God's, God works, of His justice. Just look around you. Can plants grow where there is no water? Well, of course not. And just like a plant will die without water, a person will die if he doesn't have God. The wicked have no foundation to any hope that they have. It's like a spider's web, right? No matter how secure they build their homes, they can't provide any stability. A plant might look like it's doing fine for a while, but... If those roots only go as deep as the rocks and not into the soil, then eventually it's going to wither and die. It's easily destroyed. It won't last. And once it's plucked up, nobody will even remember that it was there. The godless might appear to be successful for a while. They might shine for a while, but it's not going to last. No, that's where Job is. For a while he looked righteous, he looked good, but it turns out he had no roots is what Bildad is saying. So by the time we get to verses 20 through 22... Bildad is very dogmatic that there are two groups of people in the world and God acts toward each one according to their character. God will not reject a blameless man and God will never take the hand of wicked people and lead them. So that will never happen. It can't happen. It's impossible because of verse 3. 
because God won't pervert justice, because God will not ever pervert what is right. So if Job is righteous, if he repents of whatever sin he committed, God will restore him. If he's wicked, if he refuses to own up to whatever he's done, there's no hope for him. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are destroyed, period, end of story. Right? Does God pervert justice? Does he make a mockery of what is right? No, never, ever. Should we repent when we sin? Always. Should we be mindful of the wisdom of the past? Yes. Is God the designer of the whole created order? Has God uh, done all things to point us to him so that we can see him? Yes. Does any of that apply to Job's situation? No. No. Remember one time, just here, since we've been in Moundsville, I'm sitting on the couch. I think it was here. Carmine plops right down beside me out of nowhere on the couch, and he says, Dad, I bet I love Mom more than you do. (laughs) I said, buddy, there's no way that you love Mom more than I do. And he goes, oh, yeah? What's my favorite color? (laughs) What? Right? That That has zero to do, zero to do, with the issue at hand. That's how Job's friends argued with him. That's how they argued with him. When God has not revealed a reason, it is best to keep quiet rather than to try to figure it out. Speculation and pontification need to have a low ceiling, beloved. In his quest to condemn Job and justify God, Bildad has justified himself He's misrepresented God, and he's condemned a man that God has actually called righteous. And we could say, well, Bildad didn't know that God had said Job was righteous. Exactly. Right. Why is he commenting when he doesn't have all the information? Bildad, again, just like Eliphaz, the first friend, eventually, you know, he just gets so mad, he boils over by the time you get into the the next cycle. Bildad is already there. He's already furious. He sees no point in being gentle. And he thinks, maybe he thinks, you know, Eliphaz didn't get anywhere. Why not just intensify the heat and Job will break? So maybe, you know, that, that's why Bildad seems so cruel here, is so cruel here. Maybe your kids did something. You know, they, they, they got what they deserved. Bildad is morally outraged that Job has implied that God would abuse a man of integrity. Right? Bildad says that Job should seek God and live an upright life. Why? Well, if he would do that, God will reward you in verses 5 through 7. Now, do we understand how ironic that is? Whose theology is that? That's Satan's theology. Ironically, if Job takes Bildad's advice, he proves Satan right. Job, you want to be prosperous, don't you? You want to have ease and comfort, don't you? Well, seek God. That's how you get those things. That's what God does. Job is proof that that's not always true across the board. Bildad is almost quoting the devil's theology or the devil's uh, explanation of why people would serve God in the first place. Back from chapter 1, Bildad has no room for any understanding but his own. He's not open to any other possible view. He's a traditionalist. We mentioned that earlier in verses 8 and 9, he's sure of his position because of spiritual tradition, because of what they've always thought. No new thought, no new idea can be 
uh, proposed. Only what is in the past is correct. But the past deposit of wisdom Bildad did have was precisely why he did not have any wisdom now. Beloved, people who place such a heavy reliance on tradition may be showing that they have very in the way of a personal relationship with the Lord. Who is farther from God in the book of Job than Job's theologically learned traditionalist friends? To Bildad, Job is leaning on a spider's web, right? Whatever Job is building on is just a spider's web, but Job is the only one leaning on God in all of these things. The real question is, what is Bildad leaning on? Where does he get the right to say these things? How does he know these things are true? Bildad is, appears as, by his own admission to be leaning on these little nuggets he's picked up over the years. And that's it. You know? Just the, the pro, the, the stereotypical traditionalist who just can, you know, lives by all these quotes about God. Well, my Bible tells me that God helps those who help themselves. I don't know what Bible you're reading. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Things like that. God will never give you more than you can handle. God only gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers. That's, that's Bildad. We, we've always, this is just, there, you don't question it, you just, you don't wonder if it's true, you don't have any issue, you just say things. You just have these little formulas and little propositions. There's no category in Bildad's theology for someone who is blameless and suffering. There's, there's no category for it because God cannot reward the guilty and God cannot punish the innocent. That's Bildad's gospel. And that's everybody's gospel apart from Christ. God cannot reward the guilty. God cannot punish the innocent. How does Job respond? How does he respond to this? Look at chapter 9. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. <laughs> but how can a man be in the right before God? He's, that's amazing. That's amazing. If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. These are constellations. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? This is how Paul argues in Romans 9 about almost the same thing, that justice, if you will, and righteousness of God. Job recognizes that God is on another level. That, that again, He creates the categories. Verse 13 in chapter 9, God will not turn back His anger. Beneath Him bowed the helpers of Rahab. That may be another constellation. It's, it's very unclear. It's not Rahab from the story of Jericho. It's not that. It's hard to understand exactly what He means here. How then can I answer Him? Choosing my words with Him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. 
If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Who can bring him to court? Though I am right, my mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless, I regard not myself, I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Now back in verse 2 of chapter, of this chapter, Job laid Bildad's entire argument in the dust with one sentence. It's over. The, the, the rest of this is just icing on the cake. Job says, right out of the gate, Bildad's claim that there are people who are actually pure before God is garbage. Verses 3 through 24 are Job saying, building on that idea, how in the world can a mortal man be righteous before a holy God? Please remember when we go through Job, beloved, God does not ultimately call Job righteous because Job never sinned. God calls Job righteous because Job believes that God is his only Savior. Job believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's expressing why he's so weighed down spiritually. It's what he's saying. I can't go to court with his God and argue my case. I have no case. I know I didn't do anything, but what good does that do? Right? That's what he's saying. I can't appeal for justice. He's God. I'm a man. So I need mercy from him. It's my only hope. Job realizes that God is on an entirely different level. That even if God had perverted justice, what could Job do about it? What could any human do about it? Bildad thinks you have to be pure so that you can approach God. And Job is saying, are you out of your mind? Do you honestly think that my hope is that I'm pure and upright? That by my goodness I can rouse God to come and help me? Job does not believe his hope is in understanding what God is doing. Job's hope is that God will just decide to be merciful to him. Because whatever is happening, he is God, what can Job do? So that's the context as we head in now to the, the rest of it. 9.25 to the end of 10, that's the context of Job's cry to God. That's important. Look in verse 25. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle, an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit. You see what he's saying? We'll talk about it in just a second. And my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. 
Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man, or your years as a man's years, that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty, and there is none to deliver out of your hand? Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothe me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. He's breaking now. If I sin, you watch me. And do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace. And look on my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick darkness. Job knows that before he can stand, or Job knows that before he can present his case, if he's given the opportunity, that God will have to shield him mercifully from the terror of standing in his presence. He'll have to remove physical suffering and the damage that has made him so unpresentable to stand before God's throne. Job says there when he talks about lie and all those things, he's saying I could get as, he, he could get as clean as he could get. It will not be clean enough to stand before God. He believes that he has a case because he knows he hasn't done anything wrong, but he doesn't believe, amazingly, that that necessarily gives him the right or the ability to present that case to God. That's why he's so broken, because he knows that that I, I haven't done anything wrong. In a sense, he feels I am being unjustly punished, but it stops right there. That's where he says, that's where he's at a loss, because he says I, I, that doesn't give me the right now to stand before God and, and plead this case. That's just what he wants to do. And he says, if, if he did speak to God, he's afraid he'd get all his words confused and look like a fool. That's what he's saying. So even if he were in the right, he would look guilty because he wouldn't be able to get his words together in the presence of this God. That's 9, 2, and 3, 14 through 16, 19 and 20, verse 30. We see such presumption from Job's friends, but we see so much hesitation from Job. And Job is the one suffering. But he's getting no reply from God, so he goes back to reason and logic. What else can he do? It is through that the centerpiece of Job's argument comes out. And it's this. If God will not speak to Job from heaven, and if Job cannot ascend to heaven to speak with God, Job is going to need the services of a mediator. That's verses 32 to 35 of chapter 9. In the throes of Job's mental anguish, it's revealed that for all five of the things that Job clings to to be true, if you remember from two weeks ago, for all five of those things to be true, there has to be a mediator. If God, That is, if God is sovereign, and this is His doing, 
if God is just and He has declared Job to be righteous, if God cares for this human being that He's made out of the dust, if all this is real and it's not a dream, then there has to be one who can stand in his case. When Job was brought to the end of himself, what he realized is that there must be a go-between to stand before God for us because we have nothing on which to stand before Him. That's what all this is making Job realize. All along he's thought a certain way about God and about his relationship with God or anyone's relationship with God. And now this suffering where there are no answers and there's no explanation is making him understand if there isn't someone to stand between us and arbitrate for us, we're undone. We're too far below him. Surely the courtroom of this almighty God is a place where a righteous man can be defended and justified because he's being chewed up and spit out on the earth. So if God will not bring that courtroom to earth, and if Job cannot ascend into heaven and enter it, there has to be somebody who can represent him. There has to be somebody who can plead his case for him in heaven. The logic here is inescapable. Job has nowhere else to go. The mediator, the advocate has to be there, or there is no chance whatsoever that God in heaven, or that God and man can be reconciled. Beloved, without someone in between us and God, Nothing is ever going to be accomplished. Nothing is ever going to be mended. That's the case if you're as righteous as Job is. Let alone if you're not. We're at a tragic impasse before God if court is us and Him. And we have to come up with our own representation. Especially in the midst of incomprehensible suffering. Job is hedged in here in chapter 10. God, you made me from the dust. How can I actually presume to stand before you? You know I'm not guilty, but I can't do anything about it. So since you won't talk to me, could you just leave me alone? It's very sad. You preserved my spirit. I thought we were close, and this whole time you've been plotting this. She's, he's moving further away from his center. If you were just going to eventually destroy me for sinning against you, why did you even let me be born in the first place? Well, that's a powerful question. Just let me die in peace. Everything Job says here is spot on if there's no mediator. You understand that? Everything Bildad says here is spot on if there is no mediator. Every false gospel in the world is spot on if there is no mediator. Bildad says, and when there's no mediator, by the way, in 10, 21, and 22, there's only darkness. There's only darkness. Bildad says that there's no way God can reward the guilty or punish the innocent because Bildad has no concept of a Savior. It's, it's not anywhere in the cards. And there is no concept of a Savior in Bildad's worldview because in Bildad's worldview, there is no need for a Savior. His whole argument is, I'm righteous enough to be accepted before God. You obviously are not. What did you do? Stop playing this game, come out with it, and maybe everything will be alright. He is blind to his own need, he's confident in his own ability. So Job 8.6 
might be the most anti-gospel statement in all of Scripture, and yet it is the most widely and universally believed and accepted in the world. If you are pure and upright, God will rouse Himself for you. He will bless you. He will be on your side if you're good enough. If you're good enough. The burden of that false gospel comes from what it implies. If God cannot reward the guilty or punish the innocent, then we have to purify ourselves in order to be accepted by Him. Beloved, to the degree that we do not sense our desperate need for a Savior, we will be completely unaware of who God is, just like Bildad is. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, not the grasping of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Which is why Bildad is a fool. Bildad has no fear of the Lord. Do you see that? None. Job has a ton of it. A ton of it. Look at 8.20. This, this is an amazing thing to say in light of Scripture. Bildad says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Bildad, yes, he will. That is precisely what God will do. God will do both of those things by way of a mediator. Through a mediator, God will preserve his righteousness and forgive our sins. Through the mediator, Bildad's argument falls apart. His false gospel dies The book of Job is a case study in humanity's utter lack of understanding that its only hope of salvation is the suffering of a perfectly righteous man on their behalf. It is the exact foreshadow of Jesus Christ in Job. And in its pages in the book of Job were meant to move from the darkness of our own misunderstanding to the light of faith in Jesus Christ. How was salvation accomplished by God rejecting a blameless man on behalf of blameworthy people? God took the hand of evildoers in eternal fellowship through the mediating suffering of the righteous one He had bruised. You see, what's really going on here is a, ma- is, is a fight over the gospel. This is a fight over how people get saved, how people get made right with God. Since Bildad had no framework for a Savior, Bildad is unable to see God correctly. You see in Bildad the microcosm, not only of Israel's rejection of Jesus, but of the world's. There's something corrupt in us that disables us from seeing the truth of the situation, from grasping it correctly. We need to be saved. When God's righteous and holy law encountered sinful fallen individuals, rather than it being successful in showing them their desperate need for a Savior, their foul natures read it as a means by which to be made right with God. Oh, here's the instructions. They completely missed it. So when Jesus came to Israel saying, you've missed it, God requires absolute perfection, and that's why I'm here, because you're all sinners. What did they say? No, no, no. We have Abraham as our father. Your point is moot. Right? 
What are you talking about salvation? What do we need? Right? Just by virtue of the law being given to us, we're, we're in. If, if there's something else we need to do in order to have eternal life, then tell us what that is, and we'll do that too. And when it became clear, again, when it became clear that God's design was to punish the righteous and reward the guilty, they killed Him for it. They rejected Him. They crucified Him. Job is about how our natural instinct is to reject the way that God is. To reject God's rule. To reject the truth. Mainly because we do not agree with Him that we need a Savior. There's nothing new under the sun today, beloved. Jesus is not so universally hated today, while amazingly, Islam is so passionately protected ultimately because of how Christians vote. That's not the main reason Jesus is hated. Jesus is ultimately hated because humanity's gospel, of which it is unashamed, is that God will not reject a blameless man. He will never be the friend of sinners. That is for them the very center of their hope for salvation. Everyone believes apart from Christ. You see, Romans 1 takes atheism and just says, yeah, it's, it's, it's really actually white noise. Nobody's an atheist. There are God-haters and God-lovers. That's it. Those are the categories. Everybody knows. And so deep down inside, what people are ultimately rejecting is this idea from God that the way to their reconciliation is for them to surrender their rights, for them to ask forgiveness for their sins, and have the righteousness of another granted to them. The gospel is God saying, I am not interested in what you bring to the table. Stop trying. You'll never be good enough. You'll never make yourself pure enough. You need my son, or there is no salvation. That is offensive. And it's more offensive than anything in the universe to the natural man. And Job's three friends just embody it over and over again while this suffering man is just trying to make sense of the fact that there's a distance between him and God that he cannot cover. So he, there has to be a mediator. There has to be a go-between. Jesus is an insult to our truth. We want God to reward the righteous only and we want God to punish the guilty because only other people are guilty and only we are righteous. So everybody assumes they're good. That presumption was the basis of Bildad's whole argument. This idea of Job's that he couldn't make himself righteous enough for God to accept sounded to Bildad like he was just excusing his sin, which is exactly what grace sounds like to people today. Right? If, if you say... That, well, you know, I'm, I, I don't trust in any of my righteousness. I, I, the only thing I can cling to is God's grace. That just sounds like an excuse. To, that, that's, how, that's what people say to that. If you preach too much grace, you know, well, yes, but, you know, you can't, you know, you're, just, you're not taking it seriously enough. You're just trying to excuse your sin. That's just an excuse that you would wholly lean on grace and need more grace and preach more grace. grace. That's not an excuse. It's the only truth. We might think, when we read the Bible, we can pull that off. That's insane. It's insane. 
How many times have people heard a text like the one we preached from this morning? How many people do you think actually do what we read in that text? So we, we, we can play the word games all day. If it's not true that grace keeps going, if it's not true that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You see, that's what we miss in Romans. That is true. It's just not an excuse to keep on sinning. But it is true that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. If that is not true, nobody is getting to heaven. Nobody. Nobody. Do we really want it to be that at least some of it is up to us? Do we really want it to be true that there comes a point where God says, you know what, that's enough. No more grace for you. I've forgiven you too many times. We've had this conversation too many times. Is that how you really want it to be? Because if it is, you're self-righteous. And you're kidding yourself, beloved. Just be honest tonight inside. That if it's not true that grace goes further than we do, there's no hope. Job 9.33, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, Jesus answered Job. He just answered him later. Job suffered in the darkness of the time before God's time to reveal Jesus. But in the cries of Job from the ashes, we can hear the faint whisper deep down inside of Job that God was not being silent. God was carrying Job even in the ashes. Job's cries would be heard. Job would be vindicated, but not because he was righteous. Job's hope was never that God was being unjust and he needed to correct it. That was never Job's hope. Job's hope was that God would provide a mediator that would lay his hands on him and God and reconcile everything. And God did. The foil to Bildad's false gospel is that there is a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In Him, God has punished the innocent, and through Him, God has rewarded the guilty. It's precisely what the Gospel teaches. This idea then about what God can or can't do, or can or can't allow, is tainted because it has no category for grace. It has no category for what was reconciled and taken care of and answered when Jesus Christ the righteous came and suffered unjustly and died in our place. Grace is the way in which God maintains His integrity and pardons us at the same time. The character of God is questioned when grace is rejected, which is the epitome of where Job's friends are. We've talked a lot on Wednesday nights in our study through Psalms about this idea that God is the one who gets to create all the categories. Now, if God's hands were unkind or cruel, that would be the most terrifying thought in the universe. But instead, by God's design, God in human flesh, God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, takes those hands and lays them on us both, God and man. Jesus absorbs God's holy wrath. Jesus absorbs our sinfulness. God's righteous demand for justice and our desperate need for salvation meet in the Savior that God sent. 
Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator. He perfectly and completely represents both sides in this the greatest of all courtroom dramas. Therefore, in Him, God is pleased to reconcile all things to Himself through the cross. And God isn't hesitant in this. He isn't resentful. He's satisfied. We aren't left hanging. We aren't still on the line for part of the bill, beloved, tonight. We're saved, those of us who believe. It is the gospel. It's in the gospel that we find hope then in our suffering. It's, it's, it's what God believes about the gospel that soothes us and eases us or is meant to in our suffering. It isn't, it, it's not that once we've made ourselves pure and upright, God will accept us and therefore we will no longer suffer. That's the world's gospel. God's gospel is this. Since you have no hope of becoming pure and upright enough for me to accept you, I have given my son to forgive you of all of your sins and perform all of your righteousness. So it's done. Come in, have a seat at my table, and let me serve you. Suffering is so brutal because it will often make us think that God is reneging on his great promises. Right? That he's forgotten, that he's changed his mind, that he can't see That's our theme through Job, that suffering raises questions only the gospel can answer. That's right, and God's answer is a person who suffered. Job lived before God sent his mediator. But Job was declared righteous because Job knew his only hope was that God would send a mediator. There's, you see, that's, that's, that's what Job, that's what makes Job righteous, his faith that God was going to have to do this. We live on this side of that promise, beloved. Our hope in suffering is that God has proven to us that He has made peace. Jesus Christ, the truly righteous one, endured the ultimate suffering that you and I might come back to the Father and be made whole. Believe the gospel, beloved. Believe it. Believe it completely as your only hope, zero percent of it is on you. It, it, believe it. It's our only hope. So Linda will come. I'll pray and I'll be here in the front as we sing if any of you need to come and pray. Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us tonight to look into this book once more. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we make our way through. This is a difficult book to understand and to grasp. And so, Father, we're asking for your help. But I think, Father, the, the theme is clear. Ultimately, what you want us to get out of this book is clear. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to believe in Christ. And this we ask in the name or in his name. Amen.